going to be in 1 Corinthians 12. Now, when time allots, this isn't a very long um, chapter or the, uh, the uh, second half of it. We go into the Proverbs. So we're going to go to a, a few short Proverbs, and you can go pretty much to the center of your Bible if you have an Old and a New Testament. You'll find Proverbs after the Psalms. Proverbs 11, starting with verse 29. It says, he who troubles his own house will inherit the wind, and the fool will be servant to the wise of heart. Now, we all know someone, maybe we were in the past, that's kind of has self-destructive behavior, is you know, always looking to start a, a scuffle or a pick a fight. But this person troubles his own house. This person not only looks to cause harm on the outside, but even those that are close to him, he causes trouble with, Right? And this person will inherit the wind. In other words, they'll inherit nothing. How can you grasp the wind? How can you inherit the wind? And the fool of heart, or the fool will eventually serve the wise of heart. Why? Because of lack of wisdom and bad choices. Verse 30. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. Fruit in the Bible is a byproduct of life's work. It's um, the result of life's work. The tree of life. These people are builders, and they're building for eternal purposes. And the soul winner is wise. Anyone whose life's goal is in harmony with God's, of course, is wise. Verse 31. If the righteous will be recompensed on the earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner? The righteous recompensed. And we see this common theme, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament. You reap what you sow. And even on earth... For the righteous, those who trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, if it amounts to peace and inner tranquility. See, the Bible doesn't promise you're going to be wealthy, or if you believe in God, he's going to give you the biggest house on the block and the nicest car. But what we, what we are promised are two things, well, many things. Number one, the enmity between sinful man and women with a, with a holy and perfect God, that, that enmity is broken. There's a ceasefire. There's peace. But we also know that even if our, the lives around us are in chaos and things are happening, we have that inner peace and tranquility. I can personally attest to that. No matter what has gone on my, in my life or is going on in my life, the Lord gives me a peace. And that's a really good witnessing tool. How do you stay together with all this going on? It's, it's the Lord. He's really the one who does it. There's a spiritual component that we have to understand. But the wicked will also reap. Right? They'll reap what they've sown on the earth. could be the equivalence of moral bankruptcy. And they may have riches. They may have something on the outside that makes them think, wow, the Bible says this, and, and I see a different story. Yes, you're looking in the natural realm. Okay? Moral bankruptcy will only lead to judgment in the end. Right? And life is very short. And one more verse. Uh, we're going to go to chapter 12, verse 1. Whoever loves instruction loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. <laughs> I kind of laughed when I saw that. I can imagine all the Bible translators sitting at, around saying, gee, what do you think God's trying to say here? I think he's stupid. Oh, yeah, we'll go with that, stupid. So, but a, a willful stupidity, right? The person who can't learn. I have to say, when I was 20 years old, I knew it all. Nobody could teach me anything. Of course, I'm being facetious, but I learned my lessons, right? 22 years later... I'm willing to learn. I have my ears open and my eyes open, and I'm willing to humble myself and learn. But it goes a little bit deeper than that. Whoever hates reproof is stupid. 
You know, there are some that just chafe at the submission to God. There's a possibility that if they go in the right direction, things will change for the better. But they chafe at that. Even scientists, you know, some of these most brilliant men, far smarter than me, when they find another discovery that leads them to a possible higher power, well, you know, if they have preconceived notions, right, they already have a, a foundation that doesn't include God, they'll circumvent all that and make up these, these ideas that could have happened because we can't have God in the equation. So you, you see this. And I would say this, if you're new to God's word, open your heart and your ears to what he has to say to you. You will benefit. Now, we can fast forward to 1 Corinthians 12, the Gospels, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12. While you're heading there, we started out with the first chapter or the first section of chapter 12, uh, verses 1 through 11. And basically, we looked at the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We talked about the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? Right? We spoke about the Holy Spirit's relation to us when we become believers. And then we talked about these supernatural abilities that the Holy Spirit gives us to further the work of God. And I'll just rattle off some. We covered roughly 20 of them uh, from four different points of Scripture. Apostle, prophet, teacher, pastor, the gift of tongues, the interpretation of tongues, administrations, helps, um, the gift of giving, um, the gift of mercy, healings, miracles. Uh, encouragement, discernment, faith, mercy, and, you know, to, to that effect. Uh, so today we're going to find out as we finish this, this chapter, the second part of the chapter, because I wanted to divide it up in two, there's a lot here, uh, we're going to see that the Apostle Paul puts the gifts in perspective with respect to the body of Christ. Now, today we're going to think globally. I know that's a buzzword, you know, today. Think globally. Everything's global, markets, banks, whatever. Uh, environment. But today we're going to think globally. When we talk about the church, when we talk about the body of Christ, which is the church, and Jesus is our head, we're not talking about Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We're not even talking about Calvary Chapel. And we're not even talking about the United States. We're speaking about all believers who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They are the ecclesia. They are the ones that Christ has called out of the world, all right, to be a part of his church. When we go to heaven, we're going to meet people from the other side of the world, uh, different cultures, languages. It's going to be pretty awesome. You know, the organization, I can imagine, would be a nightmare for any human, but God certainly is going to do a bang-up job with it. So let's look at the church, the ecclesia, the body of Christ, collectively and globally as we speak today. Verse 12. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body so also is Christ for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body whether Jews or Greeks slaves or free and have all been made to drink into one spirit for in fact the body is not one member but many so the Apostle Paul is now taking the body of Christ and making it analogous to the human body and we're gonna see it go back and forth because it's like a parable, and the word parable just basically means something cast alongside. He's using images of the human body, which we're all familiar with because we all have one, and uh, making a spiritual truth and helping us to understand the body of Christ. So the question is why? Because the Corinthian church had a problem. They had a problem with unity, 
with uh, some trying to think that they were more important than others, and also they had a problem with interdependence. Verse 13, we'll start with this. At conversion, we are baptized. Now, the word baptism can only be understood unless it's a complete immersion. The word that's used to understand baptism in the Greek is a, is a total immersion. So he's not necessarily talking about immersion in water here, but we were baptized in the Holy Spirit as believers. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit. We're immersed in the Holy Spirit. And number two, we're also immersed in the body of Christ. Now, there are no loners in Christianity. When we grow and we become mature in our faith, we understand that we work together, right? So, as Christians, we're male, female, single, married, moms, widows, Democrats, Republicans, black, white, you name it, all the diversity, but we are one. We're diverse, but we're one, right? Each is important member collectively in the body of Christ. I got to say that I'm not a fan of ministries, and I'm not saying that they're necessarily wrong or that they're in sin, but I'm not a fan of ministries that take us and separate us and show how diverse we are, which is good, but they don't go the extra step. They basically say, well, you stay with your own kind. No, we're diverse, but we come together and we work together. Verse 15, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body, just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. So Paul shows how ridiculous the human body would be if it was possible for our bodies to be divided. If a foot could say, I'm tired of being stepped on for all these years, you know, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not a hand, so I'm not part of the body. Or if the eye would say, or the ear would say, because I'm not an, an eye, I'm not part of the body. Now, listen, wouldn't it be bizarre if this could happen? Think about it. And some of you may say, listen, my body is not working that well. But it's still working better than what the Apostle Paul is describing. Let's just say, for argument's sake, that you're at work. You work in a warehouse, your, your secretarial skills, you drive a truck for a living, and all of a sudden your body said, you know what, I don't like working with the other parts. And the foot started kind of doing this, and the hands were doing this, and your mouth was slurred, and you know, your eyeballs were spinning, because they all just want to get out. Well, that would be weird, and none of us could do anything. We'd be dysfunctional, right? But... But it's just as, as, as silly in the body of Christ to say, well, I'm not a pastor. I'm not a teacher. I don't have any of those high-profile, important positions, so I'm not of the body. What the scripture is saying is that we're all important, right? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the smelling? This is another oddity. If the parts decided that um, you know, they look at this importance thing and they want to be something else. But what if the whole body were an eye? And this is just weird. Like, let's say, um, you know, you were an eye, big eyeball sitting there and, and you're a liver just sitting there and you're small intestines and, you know, and this is what we got. Not only would it be grotesque for me to look at, it just would be weird. And not only that, how could we even survive? 
right? We couldn't survive because if you remove an organ from the brain and the circulatory system, what happens? It dies. It doesn't take long, but it dies. And there's a lesson there too. The, blood, the lifeblood, the brain, right? We are the body. Jesus is the head. And the head tells the rest of the body what to do. And you can make that analogy in the body of Christ. By the same token, let's just keep taking the physical and bring it into the spiritual. If everyone in the church today, I look out, everybody's a pastor. We're all pastors today, right? But there's no ushers. There's no worship. There's no sound. There's no Sunday school. It's no good. As far as I'm concerned, it would be boring. And, you know, there'd just be a lot of issues to... to, uh, to overcome. But by God's sovereignty, two things happen. Number one, he made an awesome human body. Our body works. It functions. There's redundancy in function. There's redundancy in the bones and the musculature and, and the nervous system. It's just amazing the, uh, the complexity that God has made in a human body. Even in our fallen state, the body still works pretty darn good, right? Now, secondly, by God's sovereignty, he gave us all the gifts of the Spirit that we need, that He wants to use. He's made us all diverse, so that when we come together, it works nice, it works well. And I've said this before, we all fit into God's mosaic or tapestry. You know, when you take a, a mosaic and you put the pieces together and you're looking really close at what you're doing, and you see the, the purples and the reds and the browns, and you're, you're doing the thing, right? Everything's got to go where it belongs. It doesn't look like much when you're close, but when you step back and you look out at it, wow, it takes on a whole new appearance or a tapestry, anything woven. When you look close, you know, lady, you know, whoever has, knits these blankets, you look really close, and it just looks like reds and blues and greens, but when you look back... You see a design there. It's beautiful. And that's how we're supposed to work. We don't see how we fit in. When we look really close, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But when everybody is using their gifts to glorify God and we step back, it looks beautiful. And that's the, that's the whole purpose. So as we appreciate our well-functioning human body, God would appreciate if the body of Christ would do the same. You see, it's easy to do the solo thing, right? God hasn't given me the ability to be Tom for a few years or vice versa for me to walk in his shoes. I've always been in this body. All I know is me personally in that sense. But, you know, there's diversity here and there's, um, again, I miss my place and I hate when I do that. <laughs> I got it. But what happens is we can easily do the solo thing. We get up in the morning. It's easy for me. I get up in the morning. I live. There's a lot of land. You know, I got my bee, the hives, and the animals, and the gardens. And I just go outside and I pray. Very easy for me to do the solo thing with me and God. What's challenging is for us to work together in furthering God's kingdom. But that's what God challenges us to do. He doesn't ask us to do easy things. Verse 21. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts have greater modesty. But our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to the part which lacks it. That there should be no schism or division in the body but that the members should have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the other members rejoice with it. Now, you are the body of Christ and members individually. 
So the eye says to the hand, I don't need you, or the head says to the feet, I don't need you. As ridiculous as it would be, hypothetically, for the apparently more presentable or honorable parts of the body, the human body, to tell the lesser parts get lost, it's still equally foolish when there's discord and disunity in the body of Christ. And verses 22 through 24, basically he's saying that any part of the body that we deem weaker is still indispensable, right? If I look at my hand, it does a lot of nice things, right? They're trying to model it with uh, different robotics for people who have lost limbs, but they can never really duplicate perfectly the human hand. And, you know, let's say I look at my hand and say, well, the weakest part I'm going to guess is this little pinky right here. And I cut off the pinky, right? Does it change the dynamics of the hand? You bet it does. It'll change my grip strength. It'll change my dexterity. Well, I thought the, the thumb was the big one. Yeah, it is. But I still need my pinky finger. It, it seriously attenuates the uh, functionability of the human hand. So there's a good example right there, right? And... You know, we're looking at these parts of the body, and I don't know, just didn't color code it right today. I don't know what the deal is, but let's move on. All right, where's the hand? I'm going to have to take the gap and, and truncate it when we, when we get through this. So that's what you have there. You know, you lose a part of the body, and this is what happens. Um, what about some parts we prefer to prevent or present and others hide? They're also indispensable. So let me give you an example. The skin versus blood, right? Well, you know, we shave, right? We shave to, to look good for people. We maybe get a tan, put on makeup. Of course, the face, we've got to have moisturizer because nobody can see any, any blotchy uh, spots or anything like that. So when we present our skin, to, it's a presentable part. We want to present ourselves nice to other people when they see us. Well, what happens if I, I don't know, cut my head and I got a gash? and there was blood dripping down my head. Well, blood is ugly, it's smelly, it looks bad when it scabs, and it's really nasty when it starts to bring the skin together. So what do we do? We wash the wounds, we dress the wounds with gauze so nobody can see the blood because it's nasty. But my question to you is, where would the skin be without the blood? Where would the epidermis be without the dermis under it? Where would the dermis be without the capillaries, and where would the capillaries be without the blood? Do you see the point? So when you really understand, and I just like to play with anatomy and physiology, uh, you really see that his point is so awesome because, you know, these parts that we look at as weaker, they're indispensable or not presentable. But God, which is one of the best phrases in the whole Bible, but God, whether it's the human body or the body of Christ, he gives greater honor to the part that lacks it. If you've ever studied... Um, you know, the body and say, who runs the show in the human body? The ugly parts, the heart. You ever see a heart? They're nasty looking, the way they pump and they're all squishy looking. And the brain, they're all convoluted and, and grayish. They're ugly, but they run the show. They're not presentable, but they run the show in the human body. Same thing with the body of Christ. The church isn't a one-man show. The senior pastor may be a high-profile position, but we cannot do it without those who are behind the scenes, all right? I know that there's many in this fellowship that not everybody knows. Maybe you don't all know these people, but you know me because I'm up here, right? And I'm going to embarrass her, but Betty Reed is an indispensable, sweet, dear, <laughs> mature saint. She's always willing to help someone, always willing to make a meal, always willing to fill in where needed. Betty Reed is indispensable to this fellowship. But many of you may not know who she is, and I won't make her stand. I won't do that to her. Right? 
Verse 26, when one part of the human body suffers, the whole body suffers. So let's say, listen, this is cold season. You get a virus, a viral attack. It attacks the body. What happens, right? The immune system kicks in. The hypothalamus regulates the temperature of the body. The intestines are affected, depending on what what you get hit with. The head, the sinuses, all are involved and all suffer. And that's the way it should be with the body of Christ. Supporting each other, praying for each other, empathizing with each other when we're going through things. The attitude shouldn't be, hey, it's not my problem, I'm not involved. We all need to lift each other up. By the same token, when one part of the body is honored, all members rejoice. The body is in homeostasis. When we get rid of the virus, everything comes back to normal and we feel good. We're at homeostasis, right? So by the same token, what that means is in the body of Christ, there should be no room for jealousy and envy and coveting another's goods, right? And, and listen, let's just say what's real. This, we're humans, we do this, we sin, we're flawed. Somebody gets the nice house before you do, brothers and sisters. Maybe there's a jealousy issue. Someone has the baby before you, you can have the baby. You've been trying for years, and these, this couple just gets married, and they have a baby. Some jealousy issue, envy issue. I've seen it. It's not pretty. And I'm just being honest here. Someone gets the promotion before you get the promotion. You're not really happy for them because you wanted that promotion. Jealousy is ugly. Covetousness is ugly. We're supposed to be building each other up. When one suffers, we all suffer. Look at the prayer list. Who's on that prayer list? There's some really solid folks who just take those prayer lists home and pray for those who are, who are down so they can be lifted back up again, right? So, bottom line, to those, number one, who think themselves lowly and have nothing to give, right? God says you are needed. We are interdependent. Second point, those who think that they're better than others, this should be a wake-up call to humility. I got to tell you, from my own heart, I can't do CCC myself. I need all the other gifts that are employed in this church that are working together to, to do this, you know? I mean, gee, we're in a, an auditorium, right? For this thing to, to work and for us to be able to read the Bible and for it to go on CD and, and, and help people who have questions. And, you know, we need a lot of folks coming together and using their gifts of the Spirit. So it's important. And for those who find themselves outside of the body... What are you waiting for? Now, if you're a new believer, don't let this frighten you. You know, new believers, sit at the Lord's feet. You get saved. It's so exciting. You know, you, you know Jesus is your Lord and Savior, and you're starting to read the Gospels. You've never seen this stuff before. It's so exciting. Just give yourself some time. Read, pray, let God grow you. But after some time, he will show you what your gifts are, right? When there's persecution or a catastrophe, the hope is, and even in times of uh, prosperity, we all get together, work together, use our gifts together, right? And God is blessed by that. But, you know, hopefully when there's some type of catastrophe or persecution, you see it really come out more. And I'm just going to use a humorous example to explain this, right? So you have a bunch of Christians, right, mature Christians. They go out to dinner, a bunch of them at a table, and a new waitress comes to serve them. She thinks she can handle both of those trays at the same time, and she ends up slipping or falling, and the, the food comes crashing down. It's all over people's laps. The, the dishes break. The food is, food is ruined, and it's a catastrophe. Well, the person with the gifts of helps will clean up. The person with the gift of giving will pay for the ruined meals. 
The person with the gift of exhortation will help the waitress to feel better. The person with the gift of teaching will show the waitress how to avoid the same mistake again. The person with the gift of evangelism will tell the waitress that anyhow Jesus loves you and invite her to the church. And the person with the gift of administration will organize the response so those using the gifts don't impede each other. Right? That's kind of nice, isn't it? And, And if you really could envision that and imagine that, or if you've seen that happen, that is a blessing. Everybody just gets together and they help to make it work instead of staring at the poor waitress and wondering what he or she is going to do, right? Verse 28. And God has appointed these in the church, first, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, after that, miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, the varieties of tongues, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles, Do all have the gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the best gift, and yet I will show you a more excellent way. You see, the church of Corinth, just going back from last Sunday a little bit, they were prideful, they were lifted up, they were claiming the best gifts for themselves, and really, in some ways, artificially claiming those gifts. Uh, They were using the gifts in a way to make others feel less and for them to feel more important. And the gift of tongues was an issue that was abused in particularly the, uh, the Corinthian church. But the Apostle Paul was setting them straight. For a church to survive, this is really how it goes. Apostles, prophets, they kind of lay the foundation of the early church. And, uh, you know, this is how he goes into it. Now, there's a few verses that I'll read in Greek only because I want you to catch something here. Uh, Are all teachers, may pantes... Uh, didaskaloi are all teachers. May pantes glossais lalusi do all speak in tongues. You don't see it in the English, but in the Greek, the may comes before the, uh, the phrase, and that tells us that that's an interrogative with the, which demands a no for an answer. In English, all that means is that as he's asking these questions, the answer is supposed to be no. No, not everyone speaks in tongues. No, not everyone has the gifts of healing. So when you really understand the Greek sentence structure, just like English has rules of grammar, uh, Greek also has rules of grammar. And verse 31, he says, But desire the best or the greatest gifts, and yet I will show you a more excellent way. This, was a, this is really a segue, which uh, next Sunday we're going to cover chapter 13, which is really, you know, again, chapter delineations came later. But 13 is the love chapter. And he explains why they should desire different gifts and how they should love each other. So we're going to go in that next Sunday. But he, he wants them to love, number one, their Lord and Savior. If you love your Lord and Savior, you'll use your gifts according to his purposes. Number two, love for the brothers and sisters individually. Um, and I said uh, last Sunday, a lot of these gifts of healings and these great gifts was not to edify the person who received the gift, but it was to edify other brothers and sisters, the gifts of healing. Most, any time I can see it in the Bible, if you had the gift of healing, you wouldn't be healing yourself. You'd be healing other folks, right? And the third part, love for the church as a whole. And we know that these gifts are used to edify the body of Christ. Now, we want to read an article. We had this, um, I think it's more of a worship magazine, Inner Voice. Um, I'm not really sure how they came in, but it was good. We've had them out on the back uh, uh, table for some time. And there's one article in particular I wanted to read. And really what he, it's an exhortation for those to get back together. And it's a long article, but I'm only going to read two paragraphs. It's from a pastor uh, in, in Elizabeth, Isaac Ahn. And he wrote this. 
Now, this is the setup. He said, one of my favorite movies growing up was Rocky II. Sylvester Stallone plays boxer Rocky Balboa, who in the prequel is given the opportunity to fight the heavyweight champion of the world. To everyone's surprise, this unknown club fighter goes the distance against the champion but loses the match in a split decision. Balboa suffers an injury to his right eye and decides to retire from boxing. He tries desperately to find an office job but to no avail. He settles for a job in a meatpacking company. Throughout the movie, you can tell Rocky is just itching to get back into the ring. The only thing keeping him from returning to boxing is his wife. She has obvious concerns about his health, especially his eye, and she fears that he will go blind if he resumes his fighting career. This part of the movie is frustrating because we all know that Rocky belongs in the ring, not in a meatpacking company. Rocky is a boxer. That's his identity. By trying to be something that he is not, you can see his spirit slowly dying. He has no peace. He has no joy. Why? He has lost his identity. And this is where it gets important. He says, second paragraph, the church is dying because we have lost our identity. An ecclesia needs to be focused outwardly, yet many people these days seem to be focused on themselves. People look for a church with great programs for their kids, a great preacher who makes the Bible interesting, great facilities with plenty of parking, and of course, great coffee. However, when it comes to giving time, energy, and God forbid, money to the church, we often complain about being too busy, too tired, and too far in debt. Church has become a place where people go and demand a lot, but are willing to give very little. Sound familiar? It's the consumer mentality. It's great at the mall or the Toyota dealership, but it has no place in the house of the Lord. Once we de develop this mentality, we cease to be the church. We cease to be an ecclesia. If the church in the United States is to experience a resurrection, we must first realize and embrace our true identity. We need to face the harsh reality, it's not about me. Now, I've come up here before and I've given you statistics. And the Northeast, in some ways, is kind of insulated a little bit, but it still holds true. When they, when they do the numbers for the United States, they find that the community churches, or churches in general, uh, are on the decline. Yes, there are many that spring up, and maybe they, they're around for a few years. Uh, but for the most part, the church in America is declining. More pastors are leaving the pastorate than coming in. But this is a good exhortation because it goes to show you that the pastor or the leaders can't do it all. And what it goes to show you is that if you follow overseas news over in China, North Korea, some of these persecuted nations, that Christians are literally dying to build the community church. In our nation, things are easy. So we're kind of, we're going out. But in persecuted nations, there are Christians that are literally being slaughtered and arrested by the government and tortured because they're Christians. But more keep coming into the fold and they're getting together and they're building the community churches. It should be a wake-up call to America. Now, I think this is just really an exhortation, right? And he says in, in, the, in, the, in the article there, my life is too busy. Or that's the excuse. God didn't make exception to his word for busy Americans. A lot of times it just comes down to time management skills and how we prioritize our lives. And I will tell you this firsthand because I was there. I was the guy for years, and I didn't get it, who would come late to serving at church. I would leave early, and I'm just telling you, this is now on, on the CD. This is who I was, and I'm just being honest. 
I was the person who said I would be there and had an excuse for why I wasn't be there. I wasn't there. And let me tell you something, folks. My walk reflected it. When I became the senior pastor, boy, I had a wake-up call in time management skills and prioritizing. But it's cool because, you know, when we serve the Lord, when we work together, when we're exercising our gifts of the Spirit, our walk also reflects that for the better, right? So it comes down to priorities. Is it my priority or is it the Lord's priorities? What's it going to take for me to segue into he and the we that I'm supposed to be serving? Are we doing our own thing? Are we out there? Are we non-committal? Right? My prayer today is that, and, and I would just say this too, when you look at Gideon, when he fought the Midianites in the Old Testament, he had 32,000 men to fight roughly 150,000 uh, Midianites. Of course, the Lord was with Gideon and his men because they were on the side of righteousness. But little by little, he whittled that 32,000 to 300 solid men who wanted to be in the fight, who wanted to serve the Lord, and who wanted to fight the Lord's battles. Do you ever hear about the 31,700 who left ever again in the scripture? They're not even mentioned. But Gideon's 300. Now, Gideon's 300 actually preceded the 300 at the Thermopylae Pass in Greece at 480 BC. And I don't know if that was their inspiration. Gideon was their inspiration because he came first. But the point I'm trying to make is that Gideon's 300. Do we want to be part of Gideon's 300? Or are we too afraid? Or are we too busy? Or are we too non-committal? Right? These are the questions we have to ask ourselves. So my prayer today is that not only that God shows us what our spiritual gifts are, but we pray about how we can use those gifts to work with each other and to glorify God. Let's pray.